Again, it's page 1216, easy to remember, 1216 in your Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible. That is where you'll find the book of Jude, the first to the last book of the Bible. And we do encourage you, as we say each week, to have a copy of God's Word open so that you may follow along in the passage that we're studying, that you may turn to other passages as you are so led by the Lord as we look at God's Word together. And it is a wonderful training tool, by the way. I should encourage you, if you have young children, even those who are just learning to read, it's great to put an open Bible in their laps and have them sit during the service with that Bible pointing out to them where we are as we study it together. Jude is where we are. We are in verses uh, 17 through 19 this morning. And what we're doing is coming to the close of a section where Jude has spent, as we've seen over the past several weeks, spent so very much time unmasking these false teachers and reminding his readers of their coming judgment. Because that has always been what God has promised, his judgment upon all the ungodly. We need to be able to grasp all that he has said in this big picture that he has painted for us. I think we can see it best as we sort of look at the scriptures at what is godliness and compare what their reaction would have been in the same situation. And so you go a lot of the stories of the Bible. Let me just give you three stories or passages of the Bible. If these men of whom Jude writes, these ungodly men who do all of their ungodliness and ungodly ways, if these men were with Moses as he was called by God at the bush that was burning but was not consumed, when they heard God say, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground, they would have ignored the voice from heaven and marched on nearer the bush and ignored the fact that it was Jehovah God who was speaking to them. If these men were with Isaiah in the temple in the year that King Uzziah died, unlike the prophet who fell on his face before the awesome vision of our Lord Jesus Christ, seated on the throne of power and glory and ruling from heaven, these men would have refused to fall before him and would have given no thought to their woeful, sinful condition. And if these men had been in Corinth and heard the apostle Paul say, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If they heard those words, they would have said that making such a list is rather legalistic, And God isn't too concerned about these kinds of things anymore. You can be a Christian and you don't have to worry any longer about these things. That is not an exaggeration. The description that Jude has given to us tells us that that's exactly how they would have responded in those situations. What we see in those, of course, is a godly response from Moses, who did take his shoes off and fell before the authority of Jehovah, from Isaiah, who was prostrate on the ground because of that great vision, and certainly to those who were believers in Corinth as they responded to Paul and understood, no, this is not legalism. This is what God's call to holiness is all about. Can you see then, can you see now why Jew describes these false teachers the way that he does? Can you see why it is reserved for them such horrible judgments on the last day? And can you see why it was so urgent for Jude to write this letter as a warning to the church? 
Do not follow them. Do not listen to them. Do not go after them in their way. And do not allow them to stay in your midst. It's very much as we have said, as one commentator notes, Jude's message is a spiritual call to arms, to battle. He has mapped out the battlefield. He's pointed out the enemy's positions, traits, and his tactics. His concern now, as he moves forward in this letter, is to get the Lord's troops ready for battle. To fill out, to flesh out, we would say, what it means to contend for the faith. It is this urgency, I think, that prompted the great prince of preachers, as he is called, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, to say the following of these men and to apply it pastorally to all who would hear him. He wrote this, If I must be lost, he said, let it be in any other way rather than as an apostate, one who turns away from Jesus. If there be any distinction among the damned, those have it who are wandering stars, the term Jude used earlier, for whom Jude tells us is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Reserved, he says, as if nobody else were qualified to occupy that place but themselves. They are to inhabit the darkest, hottest place because they forsook the Lord. Let us then rather lose everything than to lose Christ. He never wanted to be, and of course he never was, identified as an apostate, those who once heard, once perhaps professed belief in the faith, but who turned away, and like these false teachers, brought shame and dishonor to Christ. You see the urgency, sin. You, you see the urgency. You see how important it is for Jude to open, to unveil, to unmask these false teachers so that we, even today, would not follow in their paths. Let's stand as we hear God's word read then, just these three verses again. We seem to be going in threes, which, of course, Jude loves as he writes this letter. Verses 17 through 19, this is God's word. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. All flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers, they do fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that... Your word stands and has stood for all of time. You have spoken it. We believe it by your spirit. We receive it with joy. Bless it now to us that we might heed its warnings, its cautions, that we might remember always the the things that you have taught us so that we might walk in the way everlasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Sometimes, and we all know this, it is sometimes difficult to remember. Now, I'm not talking about those times that all of us have of forgetfulness and that we all face, no matter our age, those moments when we can't remember someone's name that we've known for years. 
or an important piece of information that we always had memorized before the moment someone asks us and we just can't bring it to memory. I'm not speaking about those things. It's ordinary, part of the moth and rust of this life. All of us will face it, some to greater degrees than others. What I'm talking about, about sometimes it's hard to remember, is the hard things of life. It's the hard things of life. Think of trauma, for instance, a very important and uh, I think for us to understand the impact of trauma on people's lives. Think of the person who had gone through a deeply traumatic experience. They fight all of their time to keep the memories of what happened far from their minds. But something suddenly and unexpectedly seems to trigger that memory. And when it does, they feel as if they are back in that moment the moment where the trauma was so real and all the feelings are there. This week, perhaps you received the same. I received a note from a missionary writing about the recent earthquake in the Middle East that he did not experience because he wasn't there at that time. He is there now. Listen to how he related what he saw on the news to the memories that he had from almost 25 years ago. This is an example of how Difficult it is sometimes to remember things. The images he wrote we saw on the screen returned vivid memories of another earthquake, one we lived through on August 17, 1999. Every year on August 17th, I have a fleeting memory of what that was like, but this was different. Suddenly, I was reliving the shaking, the fear, the terror in the voices and faces of everyone spending the night on the sidewalk because we were too afraid to go back in the apartment building. Then I was reliving visits to the epicenter with streets full of collapsed buildings, the stench of thousands of decaying bodies buried under the rubble, the wails and the pain. This week, we both found ourselves at intervals weeping uncontrollably all over again. The nightmare had suddenly returned. Sometimes it is really difficult to remember, to call to memory those times especially which have caused such trauma in our lives. All of us, I think, at some degree, some of us more than others, understand that. But at other times, at other times, it is of utmost importance that we remember, that we remember what we have learned In fact, failing to remember can lead to serious troubles, much like I think what Jude is reminding his readers of, because it seems that one of the things they had forgotten was to remember, to remember what God had taught them. One writer noted that I noted in my study this week wrote this, that at Dachau, concentration camp near Munich, Germany, there is a museum containing some relics as well as some grim photos depicting the conditions during the horrific years of World War II. And as the visitors leave, and some of you have seen this, they pass by a sign next to the door that reads, those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. That's a phrase that you'll see as you leave Dachau. I have never been there. I know Some I've known have been there, but I have not. But that phrase is very important, and I think that's the sentiment that Jude 
has here in these verses. As Jude begins this next section of his brief letter and transitions from unmasking these false teachers who have crept in unnoticed among the flock, he wants to impress them with this sentiment. You must remember, he says, you cannot forget. In this great battle of contending for the faith, we need to heed the cautions and warnings of the past particularly those given by our Lord to his apostles, so that we are not caught off guard. And so we'll look at these verses under really two headings because it's fairly straightforward. And remember, Jude is sort of summarizing. This is, I think, the transition section between the unmasking of the false teachers. Now he'll turn his attention, as you see very clearly, even beginning here, by calling them to action. And the first step of action for them is simply to remember. So the first point is a call to remember what they were told, a call to remember what you were told. Note his beginning here as he says it, beloved, but you must remember beloved. This is not the only time, of course, as you've studied and perhaps are memorizing Jude. You see this term often in this particular brief letter. He loves these people as a shepherd, as a pastor. Unlike uh, Ezekiel 34, he is not one who seeks to feed only himself, to devour the sheep for his own benefit, but he loves them. He serves them. He searches for them. And in this letter, he's going after them. He's pursuing them because they had fallen into this great danger. And so this marks a transition in his mind. He's going to remind them of his deep love for them that he has and that God has for them as well. The tenor of this letter has been hard so far. We've noted that. There have been subtle and not so subtle rebukes here. The believers had forgotten. They had allowed these false teachers to sort of creep in unnoticed. How did that happen? Especially as we look at how he describes them. You would think they would stand out and and be so different from the people to whom Jude is writing, but they weren't. They were able to disguise themselves as angels of light. So there is some rebuke here. And so some may ask, well, where is Jude's love for them? He seems to be rather harsh. Well, here he reminds them they are beloved, beloved of God, beloved by him. But he still needs to warn them. He still needs to call them to remembrance. If this whole book is called a call to battle, and I think it is, and if the scenario of the battle is fitting, that is, the scenario of warfare is fitting, and I think it is, then beginning here, really, and moving through the rest of the book, we have this imagery before us of what it means to contend. Here's the battle plan. We're not going to look at this morning, but look at what he says in verse 20. He uses the word again, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. These are sort of tactics that they're to use in order to contend for the faith. Here's the battle plan, and it begins with a call to remember. Even as soldiers practice in basic training, which Nathan is doing now, and learn as second nature how to respond and act in battle in various situations, so Jude here tells them that their battle would begin by them, by them remembering. And what are they called to remember? Well, it's right there for us, isn't it? Remember, he says, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that they said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers. There will be scoffers that will come. This was not to be a surprise to anyone. As we've noted all throughout her study, the, the, the people seemed to be surprised, but it shouldn't have been that way. In fact, they should have been on their alert as we have men standing out and sitting out in the narthex that are watching cameras around our building to make sure that no one with ungodly motives would come here to do any harm. These people should have been standing and sitting in their churches, watching and looking for what Jesus had told his apostles would surely come, false teachers who would seek to lead the sheep astray. Now, I can say with great confidence, because I've served here for many years, that the men that you have called, that God has ordained and set apart, are men who are on the watch They're going to protect the doctrine. They're going to contend for the faith. They're going to protect the sheep. They're going to seek the sheep who are hurting and seek the sheep who are wandering. And they're going to protect the flock from those who would come in to seek to destroy it. Well, Paul spoke to his Ephesian elders in Acts 20. And you remember what he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Because I know, he says, after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, among you, the elders of the church at Ephesus, there will be men who will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, and here's the contending, isn't it? Here's the tactic of warfare. Therefore, be alert and remember that for three years, I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. To the young and timid Timothy, his son in the faith, perhaps needing to be reminded of the conflicts that he will face, no doubt, Paul wrote, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Now, we know the last days are when Christ ascends to heaven, and from that moment until he returns, these are the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Be on your guard against those who come and teach or practice these kinds of things. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, So these men oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Praise God that he does protect his church. Praise God that he brings these things to light. But it depends, and it is consistent with the work of the church, its leaders and its people, to be on guard and to remember. Remember the warnings. He made similar reminders and teachings to Titus in chapter 1. 
And to Peter in 2 Peter chapter 2, he speaks in similar ways. They were doing what the Lord himself, that is the apostles, were doing what the Lord himself did his own ministry. When he warned his own disciples, beware of false prophets, remember, who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Here's what he's saying. This is what Jesus had told his disciples, his apostles, whom he had sent out, which is really what the word means. There's question, does he mean the apostles, particularly the 12? Or does he mean all of those whom he has sent out as he continues to send out from heaven those who will be his servants? The, the point is moot with regard to what, whether either is true. He's told them. They, in turn, have passed it on and told others, be on your guard Do not be caught unawares and by surprise. This is the Christian life, fraught with trials, conflict, persecutions, enemies from within, enemies from without, and in every place we are called simply to remember the warning. Well, why were these saints caught off guard? Why were they unable to detect and to note? When enemies from within teach false doctrine, when enemies from without hate us, when enemies all around cause us to endure persecution and trials, when we have to battle every day the sinful nature that remains in us and those who would desire to exploit it and to empower it. We lose so many battles, believers, brothers and sisters, because we have forgotten the things learned from the very beginning. We forgot the warnings. We forgot what Jesus had taught his apostles We forgot what the apostles had taught the believers of the early church. We forgot what God had taught us all down through the ages by his word. And Jude, the writer, like a good general, is leading his troops. He's reminding them to go back to the basics, back to what they had heard from the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be on their guard, and we should as well. But this is not all he calls them to. In this section, which I think is a transition between the sort of tactics that he gives to these believers as to how they might contend for the faith and the unmasking of these, he returns for just this brief moment at the end of verse 18 and verse 19 to give us a final picture of the false teachers. Now, I I think we could say about this passage in 18, when he calls them scoffers, following their own ungodly passions, those who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. I believe, and we'll get to it in a moment, that he could have said everything with just that last phrase, devoid of the spirit. That is the defining mark. In fact, he could have said the whole thing by just saying they're devoid of the spirit. Well, but he doesn't. So he doesn't for a reason. And I think we need to look at these very briefly. But there is a pinnacle here. There is a a height to which he will rise that will remind us that the real issue here is that we're dealing with those who are devoid of the spirit. They don't have the spirit. But he calls them this scoffers, he says, in the last time scoffers that are mockers, those who mock the things of God. They would do that by simply rejecting what God teaches or mocking those who believe, as I said with Paul and writing to the Corinthians, those are legalistic things. You don't have to worry about those things anymore. They just kind of mock Christians. You've experienced that. 
If you desire to live a godly life, you will surely suffer persecution. And part of that persecution is mockery. People scoffing at you. You see that progression. It's beautiful in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And there is a progression here. First, they listen to the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. That means he stops, pays a little bit more attention, begins to sort of ask questions about what these people are teaching, that is the wicked. And then he takes his seat among the scoffers, it says. He takes his seat there. He's settled in it. Uh, Some of you pointed out my note about Bob D. Simone. When I sent it, I said he is settling in his sin with his son, right? And I immediately sent a note out and I said, listen, this could be a sermon. We're never to settle in our sin, right? And it was he's settling with his son, right? But I said settle with his sin. Great opportunity to sort of remind us that we're never supposed to do that. But that's what these people do. The scoffers, they take their seat among the wicked, and they begin simply to mock everything. And then Psalm 2 comes along, as we've learned through Pastor Fisher taking us through the Psalms. Psalm 2 comes along, connected to Psalm 1, and unveils really their foolishness and mockery and scoffing because they turn all of that against God himself. And they would take God off his throne, bring him down, and kill him if they could. These men, these false teachers, Jude is telling us by this word that in the last time there will be scoffers, are at the end of the chain of sin and rebellion against God. And they deserve only destruction and damnation, he says. But he adds more to that. Again, he's building his case. They will follow or walk in their own ungodly passions. We've already seen that. We don't need to spend much time here this These are men who lack self-restraint or self-control. They will continue to live, to walk in as a picture of living in with contentment, living in with a settled sort of life and a pattern. So they live in their ungodly passions. They're driven like the wind blows the leaves by all of these passions, ungodly passions in life, and they readily follow. There are those who cause divisions, He adds, that is particularly reprehensible in the Bible. Uh, There are six things that God hates in Proverbs chapter 6. One of them is those who sow division among the brothers. To sow division among the body of Christ means they are undermining the very work of God who comes to bring unity. Remember the work of Christ in Ephesians 2 and 3 is to tear down the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. The whole work of Christ is about bringing to unity what has been because of sin divided. And so here, these are those who actually bring and sow division among the body, causing people to move away from the truth, separating themselves from the truth and calling others to follow them. They are, according to Jude, worldly people. It means sensual or of the earth. Instead of fixing their minds on heaven and heavenly things, as God's word commands, they fix their minds on earthly things. Paul had told his readers in Colossae, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? For you have died. You've died to the things of the earth. Your life now is hidden with Christ in God. And then Jude does this, which I think is the 
ultimate picture that we need to understand about these men. He tells us, really, what is the real reason that these false teachers do what they do? Why do they do this? Why do they seek to lead people astray? We would say today, why can't they just let people alone? If they want to live in this way, why can't they do it? And and just don't worry about them. Let them live their godly lives and and you just go on and live your life. Why can't they just let it be? I think this is the reason. They are devoid of the Spirit. That means they don't have the Spirit of God. They're not Christians. Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's perhaps not a clearer passage to tell us about what the whole purpose of the work of Christ is within the body that he came and died for, that they might be one as the Father is one, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, together one God, that that would be reflected in the body. These people don't have that spirit that spirit of unity, that spirit which brings together and doesn't divide. Galatians 5, he says, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, these people were worldly. The word is sensuous. They were of the earth. They didn't have the spirit, which meant all they had was the flesh. There was no war within them between the flesh and the spirit. They were wholesale given over to following the flesh and all the desires of the flesh. They had no spirit to work against that. That's why they did everything that they did. He who does not have the spirit of Christ, the Bible so clearly says, does not belong to him. Here is the main reason why they are who they are. The Holy Spirit who comes and dwells in the hearts of God's people, who enables them to submit themselves to the Lordship of Christ with great joy, who exalts Jesus in our lives, our love for him, our devotion for him, and all that he commands we delight in because we have the Spirit of Christ living within us. They don't. They don't. And nor does anyone who comes and does what they do, even today. They don't have the spirit, and you will know them by their fruit. This is the dividing line. If you have the spirit of Christ, you belong to him. If you don't, you are not his. And you are opposed and working against everything that he stands for. And you will do all of these things. Because you have nothing, nothing of the spirit. All you have is the flesh and you will pursue. And these teachers did. They pursued everything with a reckless abandon considered as part of the flesh and that which is opposed to God. So you can see how he could have just said, you know, take verse 5 through verse 19. He could have said, these false teachers are devoid of the spirit. End of the story. 
But he doesn't do that because the scriptures so beautifully flesh out and give us aspects and perspectives of these things that we need to understand. But this is the reason why they are who they are. They are devoid of the spirit. Now, Jude, as we come to close in this, and next time we're going to look at the, the sort of the tactics that he gives, how it is, and I think this is really what the next section is all the way through the end. It, it really is, okay, Jude, go back to verse 3 now. You told us to contend, and then you went off on this, you know, 16-verse list, depressing as it is about these false teachers. We want to know, Jude, come back. What does it mean to contend? What do you mean when you say we have to fight and contend with all of our energy? So we'll do that next week, Lord willing. But Jude Jude does give us and do a great service to us here as he reminds the saints to whom he is writing of the need for them to remember first things on two fronts, I think. One, as we have seen throughout this section, 5 through 16 and now 17 through 19, we must remember who these false teachers really are as they came among God's people from within, as they perverted the grace of God into sensuality, and as they denied our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. He has very effectively unmasked them. He's shown them for what they are. And so remember these things, brothers and sisters. Mark them out in your minds. Be careful to always be on your guard, seeking to recognize these men in our day and their teachings. And know that no matter how impressive they might appear, no matter how isolated sermons might appear to be sound and according to the scriptures, if they are like these men and they teach these things, and they pervert the grace of God, and they deny our only master and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, they are devoid of the spirit, and you will know them by their fruits. But be on your guard, be on your guard, know them, because you do not want to walk in their ways, because only judgment has been reserved for them. Now, Jude calls us, secondly, with urgency to remember the things that we learned, not just about these teachers, but what we learned, what the apostles taught, the first things of our Christian lives. We must remember them, and they, in turn, will serve us well, I think, in the great battle that Jude's going to unfold in the coming verses as we contend for the faith. Some of you may remember, it's an older book. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for most of 1989 and 1990. So that's going back a ways. The book was entitled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. You may remember that book. You may remember some of the things written in it. Robert Fulgham, who is the author, is a Unitarian Universalist minister. I'm afraid I would put him in the category because of his teachings to be these false teachers, but he wrote a good book, an interesting book, and a book that I think has been proven over and over again. He wrote a poem based on that same title, and this is what he said in that poem. These are the things I learned in kindergarten, and you can see how they relate to all of life. You get these right, you're well on your way to living a good and productive life. Share everything, play fair, don't hit people, 
Put things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush, always flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every some as well. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out in the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Be aware of wonder. Remember the little seed in the styrofoam cup. The roots go down and the plant goes up, and nobody really knows how or why, but we all really like it. Goldfish and hamsters and white mice and even the little seed in the styrofoam cup, they all die, and so do we. And then remember the Dick and Jane books and the first word you learned, the biggest word of all, look, look, pay attention, remember, look, look around you, don't be caught off guard. I think that interesting illustration, cute illustration, I think does carry weight as we think about our Christian lives. Remember, look, pay attention, brothers and sisters, the things you heard, the things you taught of Christ from those who loved him and were used of God in your life. Remember the things, the first things they taught you by their testimony, by their example, by the words perhaps they said to you. Here are some of the first things that I learned, and I'm sure you can relate. Love Jesus. Love Jesus. Love the brethren. Hate sin and the things of the world opposed to him. Love his word. Obey all his commandments with joy. Pray without ceasing. Study to show yourself approved. Glory only in the cross. And seek God's glory in everything that you do. Those are the first things. And in fact, I think he's going to tell us some of those first things in the next verses as we study. He's going to tell us to continue to remember them by his own example. But remembering these things has everything to do with fighting this battle, with contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is what we'll see in the coming weeks. But it all begins with this. You must, you must remember It's of the highest importance, as Jesus said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. You can't forget those words, can you? I know your works, he said. I know your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. They seem to be doing well and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary, but I do have this against you, that you have abandoned, you have forgotten your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. It's the same call. Just remember, remember the first things. Everything you needed to learn about being a Christian, you learned in the kindergarten of your Christian life. Everything. You just build upon it now. You grow deeply in it. But you learned it all then. Remember it and walk in obedience to him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have so taught us by your spirit, who dwells within us, who brings to our memory your word, 
who will not let us forget these things. You have told us all that we need to know, and we pray that you would continue to remind us of these things and grow us in our understanding of them. Help us to be diligent, faithful. Help us to be attentive, to be watchful in the days in which we live, for there are enemies all around us, and perhaps even into our churches there have been some who have crept in unnoticed. Give us eyes to see. Help us to know them by their fruits. Help us to avoid their ways. Help us to walk in all that you have taught us, we pray, and bring them always to our remembrance, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.